extra, extra, read all about it. I love black history, so proud about it. I know where I come from and I don't doubt it. Stand up on the roof and shout it. And if you're like me and I'm like you, then you care about our history as much as I do. So go the lyrics of the song, I am the future of black history, sung here by Culture Queen. We hear at Solutions to Violence and our guest today, Dr. Ricky Jones, also understand the importance of black history. Welcome to Solutions to Violence. You are listening to Forward Video, WFMP 106.5 FM. We are delighted you could join us today as we talk with our guest today, Dr. Ricky Jones. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. We are your host for Solutions to Violence, a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Following as part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do so by emailing us at solutiontoviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's Solution to Violence program is a recording of a virtual Third Thursday lunch event. The Third Thursday lunch event is being sponsored by the Level Fellowship for Reconciliation and Source of Justice. The Third Thursday lunch event will take place before a virtual audience of about 100 plus participants. The keynote speaker for the November 18th Third Thursday lunch event is Dr. Ricky Jones, chairperson of the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville. Kathy Ford from the Louisville Fellowship for Reconciliation will tell us about the Louisville Fellowship for Reconciliation and Source of Justice sponsorship. Welcome to the November 3rd Thursday lunch. I'm Kathy Ford with the Louisville chapter of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, FOR. I welcome you today on behalf of FOR and Sowers of Justice Network, co-sponsors of the Third Thursday lunches. Both organizations work for social justice through nonviolent action. The FOR hosted the first Third Thursday lunch 26 years ago, and we have been grateful to have Sowers of Justice Network as a partner these past several years. Today, FOR and Sowers are pleased to have Dr. Ricky Jones with us. He may not recall, but Ricky has spoken at a Third Thursday lunch before many years ago at the Rudyard Kipling. He has taught us all so much, and we are grateful that he has found the time in his busy schedule to be with us today. We do not have a lunch in December, but we will see you in January when Natalie Harris with the Coalition for the Homeless will be with us to speak about the scourge of homelessness in our community and what we should be doing about it now. Watch for more information as our January lunch gets closer. And now uh, back to you, Jim, and you will introduce uh, Dr. Jones. So good evening again, folks. Again, my name is Jim Johnson. Glad you could join us here today because the high school history books are composed by white men and adopted under the scrutiny of powerful PTAs. Most Americans don't know that there are hundreds of thousands of African-American intellectuals. African-American intellectuals with names like Sir John or Truth, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul S. Dunbar, Paul Robinson, Diane Nash, Ella Baker, Mary Johnson, Maya Angelou, Bayard Rustin, Dr. Ernest E. Just, James Bowen, Thurgood Marshall, John Lewis, and of course, Martin Luther King. Well, today, I get to add another name to that long list of African-American intellectuals, folks who have made extraordinary contributions to the development of our country and the world. Dr. Ricky Jones is currently the chairman of the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville. He is a political activist. He is the author of an op-ed piece that appears weekly in the Louisville Courier Journal, and he is the author of articles that focus on African-American 
politics and leadership, political theory, African-American nationalism, violence and resistance, the African-American male, and many other issues related to critical race theory in African-American history. It is indeed my honor to introduce to you our keynote speaker, Dr. Ricky Jones. Dr. Jones, welcome to Third Thursday Lunch. <laughs> My brother Jim, man, thank you so much for that. Uh, if if you would be willing, when when this plague is passed and we no longer have to put lamb's blood over our doors anymore, you know, to, to stay stay safe, I want you to travel around the country with me just to introduce me, man. I mean, that was that was a fabulous <laughs> introduction. I, I I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for the work that you have done these long years. I appreciate that Atlanta Braves hat that you're wearing today as well. Um, as you know, I'm an Atlanta kid and a, a, a suffered long, long and, and hard with the Falcons, Braves, Hawks, and all Atlanta sports teams. So kudos to them and kudos to you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm humbled by, by that introduction and putting my name in such great company. Um, certainly to the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the Sowers of Justice, thank you for inviting me to spend a little time with you today during this noontime hour. It's great to see faces on my screen. These screens are, are, are very different and we've, we've adjusted to them too much. But brothers like David Horvath, who, who's been out here laboring in the vineyards for so long. It's always good to be in your company again, brother. And my dear sister, Barbara Boyd, who is unsurpassed in the work she's done in this community, the love that she's poured into Louisville and the love that she's poured in, into the, the people of this community across lines of race, class, sexual identity, ethnic origin, and the love she's poured into me. So thank you so much. And the love that she's poured into a cat who I found, little Domino, who ended up being owned by Barbara. So those are the types of ties that, that we've created in this city. I'm, I'm not a Louisvillian by birth, but I've been here long enough to have a little skin in the game and have met some fabulous people. So much love to all of you all as we come up on this Thanksgiving season. I'm thankful for you. You know, as we get into this, for everybody out there, I, I hate that we have to do this this way. I actually do remember a long time ago speaking at this over uh, uh, Roger Kipling. And it was a different feel because we were able to physically be in a room together. And there's nothing like that physical contact, right? Where we can we can share in that type of energy, but we haven't been able to do that for a while. We have to stay safe and make the best that we can. But I miss being able to have contact with you all, to hug you and, 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 and get the energy from you and certainly give you a little bit of energy that I have. Because for me, it's like speaking to a green dot on my computer, which is always very, very odd. But let's, let's get through this today. Thank you to everybody in the audience now who has taken time out to join us at this noon hour this week for this, this third Thursday, which is a fabulous endeavor that's been going on for so long, over a quarter century, because you know intellectual, social, historical engagement is so incredibly important in a culture that is anti-intellectual, a culture that has a lot of people that claim to be political activists right from, from either side, but they don't really engage politics. And I see politics as the great political scientist Harold Lass as well defined it, not just as you going out voting, but the process that decides who gets what, when, where, and how. Politics is the process that decides who gets what, when, where, and how. And a lot of people, when you really get down to the brass tacks of it, are not very politically astute, even though they're being impacted by politics every day. So I appreciate those of you who have taken time out to spend, you know, a, a little under an hour with us today to talk about certainly politics, because everything is political, but also the topic of the day when we talk about the importance of education and race in this country. Certainly to the people who were not one of the benefits of technology, if you cannot be here with us live, then you may be watching this later. We appreciate you watching watching it later. 
as, as well. Reach out to FOR, reach out to the Soils of Justice, try to help them financially and help them uh, with your presence, I'm sure, with, with um, the things that they are trying to do to make this community better as we move forward. So I want to take probably about 25, 30 minutes, maybe a little bit more. You know, I'm a professor. I can get long-winded, but I don't want you all just sitting, looking at your screen for the longest. What I found quite often is people will ask me to speak and it's not my speeches that are the things that are the, that are the best. It's the Q&A. It's the interaction with the people. It's the interaction with the audience, right? Getting the questions that you have on your mind. I want to be able to take a little bit of time to do that. We can do that as a family before I have to um, go off to class, right? And so that's important. So I want to take probably 25 or 30 minutes. I may go over. I don't know, Jim, if I do hold up your hand and say, hey, man, it's time to shut up and, and talk to the people so that we can, you know, in, in, engage you as well. So I was asked to talk about education and African-American and Native American history. I'm going to do something a little bit different than that, though. Certainly talk about education, but do it in a different context. What we've had this year, both fortunately and unfortunately, are a lot of conversations around race and education shot through the lens of critical race theory, of CRT. But every time people say CRT, I respond to them and say, I'm not really worried about CRT. I'm worried about white supremacy. Okay, let me let me repeat that. I'm not worried about CRT. I'm worried about white supremacy. And let's contextualize that. And I know some of you who may have been a part of some talks that I participated in earlier this year, this may be a repeat for you because I, tr I have to, I feel compelled to repeat this certain things as often as possible because you don't know how many new folks that you're going to get in as I focus my thoughts around what's been going on. Certainly that people have been paying a little bit more attention to since last year, but the pushback this year for what I've really dedicated my life to overall. So what am I talking about when I speak about white supremacy, which links into any discussion that we have about American education? When I talk about white supremacy, I'm not talking about the cartoonish definitions of white supremacy that we see of Ku Klux Klaners historically burning crosses on people's yards or white nationalists marching through Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting Jews will not replace us. I'm not, that is white supremacy, but that is an overt display of white supremacy, which is easy to target. And a lot of people in respectable company will reject that manifestation of white supremacy. But the type of white supremacy that I'm talking about is something that is more sophisticated. It's more subtle. It's more ever present. And it's much more dangerous. The white supremacy that I'm talking about is in every area of American life that a monochromatic group of people, because of the color of their skin, feel that they, and only they, ultimately have the right to think, know, and decide. Let me say that again if you missed it. My definition of white supremacy is that a monochromatic group of people, because of the color of their skin, in every space of American society, and certainly we can talk about globally, but I want to stay centered right now on America, in every space, feel that they ultimately have the right to think, know, and decide. We're seeing this right now where we have two trials going on concurrently. One in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where we have the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed a number of people in, in that space during protests. And we have the trial of the killers of Ahmaud Arbery in my home state of Georgia going on. And surprisingly to everybody, we had Ahmaud Arbery's murder, murderer take the stand. And he and his attorneys are making the argument that the McMichaels, that, that he was afraid for his life that he killed Amar Arbery in self-defense. Let's lay out the groundwork for what happened in the Arbery case. Ahmad Arbery is jogging. 
through a neighborhood in Georgia, a neighborhood that supposedly has had crime rates tick up over time. So Mr. McMichael and his father see Ahmaud Arbery jogging and they decide that he is suspicious. They pursue him on three different occasions. At three different points, Arbery de decides he, he declines to speak with the McMichaels. He's trying to go on about his business. He is literally running away. The McMichaels accost him. They chase him. Ultimately, Mr. McMichael pulls a shotgun on Ahmad Arbery. Arbery wrestles with him to get the shotgun away because he is fearing for his life. And Arbery is shotgunned to death on the street. He is unarmed. He has committed no crime. He is killed simply because a white citizen decided that this man was a threat. And he now sits on the witness stand and said that he was nervous, he was anxious, and he feared for his life. And he, he believed that Ahmaud Arbery was a threat. The prosecuting attorney asked him this morning as I was reviewing the trial, how was Mr. Arbery threatening to you? Did he have a knife? No. Did he have a gun? No. Did he scream at you? No. Did he use pr profane language? No. Did he ever verbally threaten you? No. Did he physically accost you? No. In fact, he was running away from Mr. McMichael. And so in effect, McMichael wants to make the argument, wants to make two arguments. One, what he didn't say, Arbery was perceived as a threat simply because he existed as a black man in that space. That's one. And is expecting a jury to buy that. And they might. We don't know. That case has not been decided yet, even though the video evidence is damning. But two, he is making arguments about use of force. He is making arguments about who, what and who can be perceived as a threat, which he says he learned in the Coast Guard through his Coast Guard training. You would think that he was trained as a police officer or a military policeman in the Coast Guard, when the reality of it is he was actually a mechanic in the Coast Guard. But because of his space in society, he felt that his father and himself had the right to accost Amar Arbery, that Arbery was duty bound to stop and engage them and listen to their directives. And they had the right to think what was threatening, to know what should be done and decide whether or not Amar Arbery should be accosted with a weapon. And now we have a person who is dead for no other reason than the fact he was jogging and somebody thought he was problematic. So this is what we've seen again and again for those of us who actually engage these cases, right? Engage the overall trajectory of violence that has been inflicted upon Black people physically and psychically. Amar Arbery is not new. I mean, we remember so many cases. We remember Rodney King, we're agents of the state, you know, beat him like he was not a human being in L.A. many years ago, back when I was in college. We remember terrible cases like Tamir Rice, where agents of the state in Cleveland, Ohio, drive up and execute a 12-year-old black child within seconds of arrival because he's playing in a park with a toy gun. You know, we remember all of these cases. Certainly, we remember the George Floyd case, and certainly we remember the case of Breonna Taylor here in, in Louisville. But these are simply cases that popularized a problem that we have dealt with for many, many years. So that is important for me to, to put out what I'm talking about when I speak about white supremacy, because I want to talk about 
CRT, but only minimally, because I don't think the critical race theory is the real issue here that we should be paying attention to. That is a diversion. Let me tell you, when we talk about education, it's important for me to note, and as Brother Jim told you, I'm the chair of the proud chair of the Pan-African Studies Department here at the University of Louisville. I'm speaking to you from that department. Pan-African Studies Department is coming up on 50 years old in a couple of years. We founded in 1973, one of the oldest Black Studies Departments in the country. The first Black Studies Department to offer the PhD in the South. The University of Louisville and the city of Louisville has a gem in the department. I have spent my entire career here, not because, no offense to native Louisvillians, but not because I love Louisville, even though I love many of the people here, not because I love the University of Louisville. I have no emotional tie to it, but I love the Department of Pan-African Studies because it is the vehicle through which we serve the people. It has a long line of strong professors in this department, both black and white, like our dear sister, Susan Hurling, who's passed on, Dr. Yvonne Jones, who is still here soldiering and laboring in the vineyards with us, our dear brother, Blaine Hudson, who was persecuted by the University of Louisville when he was an undergraduate and persecuted when he was an employee of the university, as we all have been. Bob Douglas, Robert Douglas, a native Louisvillian also who has loved this department, loved this, this city in a way that I, I have thought has been inhuman. And he's into his 80s now. He's, he's provided such a template for us. The fabulously talented faculty that we have here right now as we continue to fight and push forward. You may not know this, but here at the University of Louisville, which proclaims to be or aspires to be the nation's premier anti-racist university in its largest, largest college, which is the College of Arts and Sciences. They currently employ only 24 full-time black professors. Let me say that again. At the University of Louisville's largest college, the College of Arts and Sciences, there are only 24 full-time tenured and tenure-track black professors. 10 of them are located here in the Department of Pan-African Studies. If you do the math, over 40% of the black professors at the University of Louisville's largest college are in one department. There are 21 departments in this college. There are only 14 black professors left over. So that means the majority of the departments in our college either have no black professors or one, maybe two, if they're lucky. This is in 2021 at the nation's premier anti-racist university. And yes, I say that with tongue in cheek. So what the Department of Pan-African Studies is, is it is a department that stands in the tradition of black studies in higher education, which is the most radical intellectual insurgency that this country has ever seen. We are in the vanguard of educational revolution, of educational revolution. And don't let that word revolution scare you, right? All revolution means is change. That's it. We talk about the American Revolution and the, and the Revolutionary War. Everybody's happy. But when you start talking about black revolution, people get uh, upset. And if you're in this country right now and you don't think that we need some type of revolutionary change around race, then I don't know where you live where your head is at, what you've been looking at, and what you believe. That's simply not the world that, that I live in. So Pan-African Studies is incredibly important at the University of Louisville, as Black Studies is as an intellectual endeavor nationwide. Let me speak to this when we talk about my approach to this entire thing. And you may want to take some notes on this, because there are three important points that I'm going to make initially. I like to do lists for people who are listening. 
my life, my adult life anyway, once I came into manhood and I started to formulate things, I look back on it, I interrogate what I have done as a scholar, what I've done as a citizen, what I do even as a father. There is no dividing line between those things. They're all there because if we're not trying to make the world a better place for our children, then what are we doing? But everything that I write, everything that I say, every battle that I engage in is really around three things. My life has been dedicated to asking three basic questions. The first question is this, how were racism and white supremacy created in America? How were racism and white supremacy created in America? What are, what are its origins, right? As we engage this country since, certainly the sin of slavery, of, of African-descended slavery, that was America's second sin. What was done to Native Americans was America's original sin. And what's been done to both of those groups of people over time is, is, is inhumane, it is violent, and the damage done is incalculable. But how did they start? How did racism and white supremacy begin in America? That's the first question. The second question for me is, over time, how were they expanded? How were they concretized, reified? How were they placed into the fabric of the country to the point that we don't even realize that they are there, right? So how did it begin? To how has it been expanded and solidified and, and been able to endure all this time? Because they certainly have endured. They may look different, but they still endure. That's the second question. And the third question is this. Given the state that we're dealing with, in the country on race and white supremacy, how can we identify them? How can we resist them? And ideally, how can we destroy them? How can we identify them? That is race, racism, and white supremacy. How can we resist them? And how can we ideally destroy them? I do not have, admittedly, an answer to that third question. I got a pretty good handle on the first two, but it's the third one that's giving me trouble. And I'm not sure if anybody has an answer to that, because if we have an answer to how can we destroy racism and white supremacy, then why are we not, you know, doing something about it? I think the country is in a place where either we don't want to destroy racism and white supremacy or we don't know how. We're better, but we haven't gotten to where we need to be. So those are three things. Now, let me backtrack a little bit and work on education and, and give you a nice academic word called hegemony, hegemony. Antonio Gramsci, an Italian philosopher, I think did the best job of describing what hegemony was about. You know, there's a reason why when you talk about fascist types of, of countries, you talk about any uh, tyrannical type of countries, the, the Nazis, all of them, they came for the intellectuals very early on in the process. Being an intellectual is a dangerous thing in this country, right? So just as Ahmaud Arbery was a threat simply because of his physical presence, Black intellectuals are great threats because of our mental presence, right? And Antonio Gramsci was such an intellectual, even though he was Sardinian, not Black. And his whole life was dedicated to exploring the oppression of Sardinia, which was an island holding of Italy. And when he talked about hegemony, he talked about it in terms of collective domination, not individual. Hegemony, the, the domination of one group over another. This is what hegemony is, as Gramsci defined it, right? We move forward to other thinkers, and I think that that type of domination generally has three levels to it. And our dear brother Maulana Karinga, I think, said it best, that Racial hegemony generally has three phases as we work towards education. 
The first phase in racial hegemony is imposition. Imposition. And you can remember this as the three eyes as we kind of go to class for a second. The first stage is imposition where one group forces itself onto another group, usually through the use of violence, usually through the use of violence. That's the first stage in racial hegemony, racial domination. The second stage is ideological. Once a group forces itself on another group, usually through the use of violence, it then has to come up with some reason, some ideological justification for that imposition. Violence, open, wanton violence cannot be used brazenly in perpetuity. People will resist that. So you got to come up with something else. So you got to come up with justifications for the domination of one group over another. You have to come up with justifications for the racial stratification. It can be all kinds of things. It can be white man's burden, right? It can be Blacks in Africa needed to be civilized. So we actually did you a favor. It can be religious. I mean, we have two organizations that certainly have religious ties. If you know the the story of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, coming out of that story, there was religious justification by some interpretations, the curse of Ham for Black people to be enslaved. And there's some people who still believe that madness. But you have to have an ideological justification for the racial stratification once you force yourself onto somebody. And then the third level, It's institutional. It's the institutional level. Once you force yourself on the people, you've come up with ideological reasons to justify your position in a society that has been created because of the violent forcing upon on those people. Then you create institutions that will continue to reaffirm that positionality. You come up with institutions that are not static, but they're fluid, that come up with different ways to teach to force continuously, but do it in a softer, more sophisticated way. These are the three levels of racial hegemony. And at that institutional level is where we find American education. Schooling is one of the greatest socializing tools we have at our disposal. Schooling, educational institutions from pre-K all the way up through colleges and universities, from bachelor's degrees to master's degrees to PhDs and EDDs, With those curricula, with those socialization agents, they are the greatest way to instill a certain mindset in children, American children, as they move through adolescence into adulthood. And it reifies white supremacy in ways that we but we've normalized so much that we don't even know how to resist it anymore. So when you talk about curricula in this country, really and truly what you're talking about is trying to readjust American educational curricula so that they are not as slanted as they have always been. All of us have been to school, and you know in going to school, no matter what your level of educational attainment, if you really think long and hard about it, American education, the curricula are designed to reaffirm European triumphalism. They reaffirm the idea that everything noble, just, and true that's been done, certainly in this country and maybe the world, was done by white people. And some white folks, not my white friends, my white friends don't get upset about this. My white friends go harder about this whole thing than I do because a very neat trick, too, that racists play on black people. If you talk about race, they'll say, oh, you're being a racist. And the best way for us to get rid of racism is just not to talk about it. What a very odd approach to to a festering problem to not talk about it. But then this idea of calling black people who speak to race racist is even more damaging, disingenuous, and I think nefarious. But we see it all the time, right? And so what's happened to black people in particular in American educational curriculum is we've simply been written out 
of history for the most part. You know, it, it's, it's like love, right? People think that the opposite of love is hate. The opposite of love ain't hate. If somebody's still getting upset with you, they still love you. They still think about you. It's when people become indifferent to you, when you don't even exist to them, that you have the problem. And this is what's happened, not just to black people, but particularly to black people, but to everybody outside of white people for the most part in American education. Black people, in effect, by this model, at best were dropped on the world stage in 1619 as slaves. And beyond that, we know very little about black people through American educational curriculum. Very little about black people. Even the people that we mentioned, you know, Harriet Tubman. Okay, what did Harriet Tubman actually do? Where was she born? What was her political ideology? Don't just say she freed slaves. What was her life like? What went on with Frederick Douglass? Where was he born? He was a member of the American Anti-Slavery Society. What was that? He partnered with people like William Lloyd Garrison. What was that about? The man stood before that organization and said, I stand before you today a thief. I stole this head, these arms, these legs, this body from the man this country said rightfully owned them and ran off with them. What was that about? What was going on with Frederick Douglass post-Civil War? Why was Frederick Douglass a devout Republican? What was going on with the Republican Party that was founded in 1854? And why were Black people so wedded to it? What happened in 1895 when Douglas dies and people like Charles Hamilton Houston were born and Plessy versus Ferguson comes the next year in 1896? Who was Booker T. Washington? What was W.E.B. Du Bois all about? You love Martin Luther King Jr., but what exactly did King do? What did he think besides saying, I have a dream? What do you really know about any of these people? What do you really know about Ida B. Wells? What do you really know about Fannie Lou Hamer? And what do you really know about how they impacted America's racial landscape? And why did they have to do it? Why do Americans still think that the Emancipation Proclamation actually freed the slaves when it did not? Why do we think that Abraham Lincoln was such a great anti-slavery president when his ideal solution to slavery was actually colonization? So these are things that we need to know and how black people were participating in their own struggle for freedom. Long before 1865, long before the modern civil rights movement, which was not the first. This is what education is all about. Right. And it's problematic, though, that education is set up in such a way that it doesn't speak to any of these issues. Education is set up in such a way that black children, particularly black boys, are performing on par with their peers up until about the third grade. And then they fall off a cliff. And then we say that they can't be taught. And we put them in every alternative program we can and classify them as ADD, behavioral disorder, and everything else. And problematically, if you bring a black male teacher into a class with these little black boys, their performance seems to go up, right? So why is it? Is it a problem that these black boys are learning along these two diametrically opposed axes where the majority of American teachers on the K through 12 level are white females and these black boys aren't participating? They aren't passing. They aren't achieving at all. Is it problematic that we now have a generation of teachers who are reaffirming that curriculum that is supremacist by its very nature, not necessarily because they're supremacists themselves, but because they don't know anything else to teach. JCPS right now here in Louisville wants to step up and say, oh, we want curriculum reform. And my question to them is, who's going to teach the stuff about black people? You don't have the horses. You don't have the teachers right now who are educated enough to do it. And neither does the University of Louisville once you get outside of Pan-African studies. So when we get these folk now, who crime bloody murder, people like Kentucky Representative Jennifer Decker and, and her compatriots who want to make it illegal to, they say they want to make C, these are her words, not mine. She said, we want to make both CRT and its progeny illegal to teach in our schools. 
because we don't think education should be about creating social justice warriors. Those are her words, not mine, right? And people are supportive of that. Folk who think critical race theory is the enemy. Let me tell you very briefly what critical race theory is coming out of critical legal studies. Most people don't talk about it. And most people who are against it don't even know what it is. All critical race theory says, just like when, what Antonio Gramsci said, we cannot legitimately study racism on individual levels. David Horvath could be a raging racist, which he is not. And let me be clear about that. But he could be a raging individual racist, calling people the N-word from his front porch, from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. But in the grand scheme of things, how much is David Horvath as an individual really moving the needle with his racism? Not very much individually. But what critical race theory says, we have to study racism collectively. We have to look at it structurally. We have to understand it institutionally for us to really understand what's going on. And guess what, folks? There have been intellectuals across lines of race who've been studying American racism in that way and on an institutional level long before the 1980s or so when people coined that term critical race theory. So when people talk about critical race theory, they're not really against critical race theory because they don't even know what it is. They can't have an intelligent conversation about it. What these people really are about is the maintenance of white supremacy. And they're doing it in some of the most insidious ways as I get ready to close out and we spend our last 15 minutes or so uh, in conversation. I wrote a piece a few weeks ago in the Courier Journal, which is my biweekly column. I appreciate you all reading that uh, in the Courier Journal and the USA Today Network, talking about what these people really want and how they're going about it. Don't worry so much about the folk disturbing school board meetings, the ones who are more blatant. Worry about organizations, right-wing organizations that are now training people and running them to take over school boards around the country. Now, school boards already are not the most progressive places in the world because they have basically reified the system that we're already talking about. But what folk from this ideological group are trying to do is push that even farther to the right. Why? Why are they doing this? Here's why. We now live in the most multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic America that we have ever seen. And that's not turning around. For the first time, demographically, whites are no longer the majority in America. Whites, for the first time, are less than 50 percent of America's population. And that's not turning around. And there are people afraid. There are people very committed, just in South, like in South Africa. Remember, the Afrikaners were never more than 12 percent of the population in South Africa. But they were able to dominate that country for years through that tool of apartheid. So... There are people attempting to push back right now. There are people attempting to protect what they see as their, what is given to them by God because they believe that they are the ones who have the right to think, know, and decide. And anybody who impinges upon that is problematic. And it is education. It is education. If we transform it in righteous ways so that our children of color, be they Native Americans, which is a population that's damn near extinct in this country at this point because of white supremacy, or African-Americans, we make sure that these children are not leaving our educational systems with these false inferiority complexes. And just as importantly, that our white children are not leaving these schools with false superiority complexes. Because if we allow that to continue to happen, we will stay on the road where we are. Thank you. I want to stop now and open up the floor for questions because I have a hard stop at 12.55 because I got to go at one o'clock and do what? 
educate. I got to go teach at one o'clock. But I appreciate you all for um, joining in here. And, and I'll toss it back over to you, Jim and David, you know, and, and, and Kathy to offer up any questions that you might have, uh, any questions that people are sending to you in the chat. So I think this educational issue is incredibly, incredibly important because that's the tool through which our children are being socialized. And let me say this, just as in 2016, because Louisville was really at the cutting edge of this, as we work to remove a Confederate statue from this campus, and remember Confederate monuments and statues up all over this country, they re they're reaffirmations of white supremacy. I've never seen a place where you had traitors to the country, the losers, and that's what the Confederacy was. Then people have hundreds of statues and memorials um, celebrating these folk. But as we work to get that statue down here, at the University of Louisville. Other places in the country followed us, but Louisville really didn't want to talk about it too much on the national scene because they didn't want the scrutiny, right? They didn't want the scrutiny. But the, the pro-Confederate people, and they're still out there, will consistently say insane things like, you can't change history, you can't erase history, when they're the folks who've done just that. These are the same people who will make arguments to this day that the Civil War was not about slavery. And when you look at every state, every Confederate state articles of, of Confederation, when they broke away from the Union, my home state of Georgia included, in the first paragraph or two, they all explicitly said they were breaking away because of slavery. But now folks want to change that up. And so it's important that we make sure that we work hard to keep history real history on the table. Thank you all so much. So Ricky Jones, let's, let's take a look at some of the questions that people are asking here. So from Brian, from Canyon, Brian Brenton to everyone, what I understand is why do you feel like it is their right to chase someone down like that, the way Amon Aubrey was chased? Who gave them the right to hurt another human? It's sickening. That's why I love Casey Lehman's essay, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. This is some associate, and it's so very sad. Yeah, let me say this. I don't think that they had the right to do what they did to Amar Arbery. I don't, I don't think there was any right at all. But they felt they had the right. And I'm saying that's what the mentality of white supremacy does. Right. It makes you feel like you have the right to do things that you do not. It makes you feel like you have um, a place in society and authority in society that you do not minimally. And, and let me say this. There was no reason to even do this. But minimally, those men should have called the police minimally, minimally. But there was no reason to call the police simply because somebody is jogging. You call the police because somebody is jogging. Most sane people across lines of race would have dismiss that immediately. Instead, we have a 25-year-old young American who, who's, who's dead and a grieving mother, you know, people who loved him, who've lost somebody because of that. And, and think about how many people, how many Black people we have lost, physically lost because of that. And think about how many Black people we have lost psychically because of that. I don't think people really understand the, the mental toll that, that being black and engaged takes on you. So they, they had no right. Right. But in the state of Georgia, 
there is this thing called a citizen's arrest. And I would imagine that's going to be part of the defense here. So is that law wrong? Should it be uh, eliminated? Well, certainly this idea of a citizen's arrest is what they're using, Jim. Um, they're using the idea of a citizen's arrest. And they're, they're also using the idea that they felt threatened, that, 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 that Ahmaud Arbery was killed in self-defense. I, citizen's arrest is rarely used very much like the stand your ground law. And, and we have, in this case anyway, some serious racial over and undertones in it. I can't say whether it should be eliminated, but it probably should. You know, it probably should. Because I, I don't, and somebody just said in the, in the chat that Georgia has already changed that law. Good for them. Because you cannot leave that in the hands of, 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 of people who, you know, may do things like what we're done. You can't just you can't just run around pulling your, pulling shotguns on people, you know, because they're jogging. That's that's a problem. If somebody comes into your home, you know, different different deal. But but Amar Arbery was in nobody's home. So thank you, um, whoever um, Russ Russell Vanderbrook sent that out. My my dear colleague Russell Vanderbrook over here at the, at the University of Louisville, who does fabulous work, said that Georgia has already changed that law. Thank you, Russ. Oh, okay. So another good book, says Kenyon Barton, is The Indigenous People and the Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar and Orts. So uh, if you know that book, you might want to comment, Professor. Yeah, I have not read that particular book, but let, let me say this, and, and thank you for, for bringing that up. Revolutionaries read, Right. If you really want to change the world, revolutionaries read. It, it is important that you read, that you're armed with information. It is important that we engage things to just know what we're hearing, know what we're looking at. When we talk about our Native American brothers and sisters and talk about systemic racism and, and, and the way we're socialized. Right. It's not just in the classroom. It's through popular culture, too. Right. Through cinema, through television, all of these things. When, when I was a child. Right. I loved Westerns, still do. But I, one of the shows I really, really loved was The Long Ranger. I mean, I loved The Long Ranger. The Long Ranger came on TBS like every afternoon after school. I would get in, watch Long Ranger, stuff like uh, Sesame Street, Electric Company, all of that stuff. Now I find The Long Ranger absolutely unwatchable with the way that Tonto is handled, the, 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 the dialect that he's forced to speak in that, on that show. He, his name is rarely used. The racist insults that he's subjected to in almost every episode where people continuously call him engine and, and all of this stuff. You look at a lot of these other shows when you know the history of the country and the way Native Americans were treated. We watch, we watched these shows when we were younger and we were cheering for the Cowboys. Man, we were cheering for the wrong side, right? When you understand that what was done to Native Americans, how, how these men, women, and their children were forced off their land, and if they sought to stay, they were just literally massacred. You know anything about the Trail of Tears? You know anything about Andrew Jackson? You know the founder of the Democratic Party? Then you're like, whoa, my God! And the only way we can really figure out what was really going on in this country is to read fabulous books like this. So, Revolutionaries Read. I haven't read that particular book have read others that, that looked at what's happened to Native Americans. Again, country's original sin. And we need to be sure to get some Native American brothers and sisters out here to talk about 
the plight of Native Americans because it is not my place to do that. Okay, I want to be clear about that. It's not my place to do that. And so we 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 have to work on that um, very, very diligently. Okay, so here's my question, Ricky Jones. You talked about institutionalization here. And yeah, that's I understand that's a big part of the problem. So American exceptionalism, that's part of that institutionalization that supports racism. But American exceptionalism is based on religious mythology, a religious concept that was not coined in the Bible. Yet American exceptionalism supports racism and war waged by the U.S. military. Even though American exceptionalism is built on a false economy, it has infiltrated America. You can't go to a ball game without pledge allegiance to the flag and honoring the, uh, the, the U.S. military. So how does one oppose American exceptionalism without being attacked for their stance? How do we deal with that institution? Two issues here, Brother Jim. Great question. One, the idea of American exceptionalism means that we are, in effect, somehow, well, really not black Americans, but a certain group of Americans are better than anybody else in the world, that we have the right to lead, that we have the right to dominate. In effect, what American exceptionalism is really about is a justification of American empire. It's about global domination of the country and internally domination of particular groups in the country by other groups. This idea of exceptionalism. I don't think you can resist it, though, without being attacked, which really and truly is the case with with most righteous change when you're fighting against negativity, darkness and and and. I don't want to use the word evil. I'm I'm searching for another word. Inhumanity. Let's use the word inhumanity. Very few people across lines of race who have stood up against those things have been celebrated in their day. We're really, really cool with Martin Luther King Jr. Now, my dear Morehouse brother from the class of 1948. When Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968, though, Harris Poll showed over 55 percent of black Americans opposed him. Think about that. <laughs> Over 55% of Black Americans polled opposed Martin Luther King Jr. when he was assassinated in 1968. So that if, if that percentage of Black Americans opposed him, I shudder to think what the percentage of white Americans was that, that opposed him in 1968. But now it's, you know, it's fanciful for us to celebrate King and to misuse King. It's amazing how people from the right will often invoke King when folks are resisting them and say, well, Martin Luther King Jr. did it right. Martin Luther King Jr. was this. Not Martin Luther King Jr. was nonviolent. Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't approve of this tactic. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So you love King so much. You loved him enough to blow his damn head off. That's real history. That's real facts. That's the ugliness of America. That's the ugliness of American exceptionalism and the justifications for it all. So a lot of this, it's about empire. And naked capitalism, where, you know, people say, well, capitalism doesn't work. No, yes, it does. Capitalism works for the few as practiced in America. So, yeah. So I don't think you can you can fight it without without being attacked. OK, so this question is from Russ, Dr. Russ Vandenberg. Russ is active this morning, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> yes. As well, he should be. So he says, two days before sponsoring today's talk, FOR, Fellowship of Reconciliation, co-sponsored another event connected to UofL's College of Arts and Science, Kyle Rishi, talk on his book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. In June, Inside Higher Education reported, quote, an unprecedented wave 
of Palestinian solidarity statements, noting that, quote, more than 300 academic departments, program centers, unions, and societies worldwide have endorsed statements supporting Palestinian rights. So the question is, how can Fellowship of Reconciliation facilitate you and your department endorsing similar support for people experiencing injustice and oppression? Highlight what's going on with us here. Pan-African Studies needs you. You know, we, we, we need you. That a school that says it, it aspires to be America's anti-racist university. We, we are losing funding. We have faculty lines that we've lost where people have gone to other schools, left academia altogether or retired that the university has not replaced. So we're short-staffed. We're subjected now to a budget model where we went from having anywhere on a, in a bad year, doing really, really well just a few years ago. In a bad year, we would have discretionary funds from $125,000 to $150,000 a year. I'm sorry, $125,000 to $150,000 in a bad year, up to a quarter of a million to $300,000 that we were generating in a good year to this year having $30,000 you know, because of the budget changes. We cannot travel our faculty. We can't do enrichment programs that we used to. We can't bring in, in speakers. We've lost control of our budgets. We don't have any control of bringing in in, in scholars to, to teach what, what we need. And so there, there's very little commitment to us right now. You know, to Russ's point, I think when we talk about struggle, we talk about oppression, I, as a Black studies scholar and a Black man, have to work diligently to one try to keep the conversations that are about black people about black people for a minute, you know, just try to remind people that, you know, black people are worthy of having some talks for an hour or two that are just about them that don't get submerged into talks about diversity or multiculturalism, but balance that with partnering with people like our Jewish brothers and sisters, but also partnering and, and understanding the plight of our Palestinian brothers and sisters and partnering and understanding the, the plight of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. You know, we who have been subjected to some of the most nasty discrimination on the planet cannot afford to engage in that type of behavior against any other group. And as King said, it's a sin and a shame to conspire in your own oppression. Like somebody wrote, or David, you wrote, have I read Woke Racism by John McWhorter? I haven't read that book, but I've read a lot of John McWhorter over the years. And John McWhorter is the type of black man in the vein of a Clarence Thomas, a Shelby Steele, a Daniel Cameron, who is all too willing to partner with the forces that are eviscerating his own people just so he can be accepted, make a buck and be celebrated. And so I think John McWhorter is shameful, all right? I read his stuff so I know what's going on with him for the same reason I watch Fox News, because I want to know what's going on with him. So we, we got to be global, but also we got to be very specific, because let me tell y'all something. Black people are suffering to a degree that most people don't even understand. Jim, if I may, one of my old Padawan apprentices has jumped in here, Philip Bailey, Pulitzer Prize winning writer Philip Bailey from USA Today is here. And he has his hand raised. And he's been waiting uh, patiently. And before I go to class, I certainly want to want to hear from my man. Phil, what you got, brother? Doc Jones. Like <laughs> I got a question I think that would be a little illuminating here. Do you think this is a, something I'm running into now covering politics nationally, talking to folks, you know, across the country about race and and what's happening to the country. And the question I often ask both Republicans and Democrats is, can white people be governed? Right. This idea that democracy has always 
and I had this conversation actually with Chris Matthews, who used to be the host on MSNBC Hardball. He wrote a book, Tip and the Gipper, about the relationship between Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the House, and Ronald Reagan. And he said, you know, despite the, them disagreeing about everything from taxes to foreign policy, they still had a bond, right, based on their, their Catholicism, based on their Irish ethnicity, et cetera. And I said to him, isn't that kind of what the issue is now that we don't – this was during the Obama era – that we don't see a commonality between each other as Americans because people of color, black people in particular, have been kept out of that system for so long. And now, just because of the sheer numbers, you can't keep people of color out, right? I mean, there are just so many of us now. I mean, I think the, the census showed the white population has declined for the first time in American history. I mean, the browning of America is happening now, right? What do you think about the idea that it isn't the country that is racist, right? It isn't, because we've been a part of the country forever, it's that white people in government have been racist and they have had the control of those levers and that there is an aspect of black patriotism that has been kept out of the conversation for centuries. Do, do you consider that to be an option there or do you think that I'm off on that? Um, I think it's semantics, Phil, to say, oh, it's not the country, it's, 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 it's white people in government who are racist. Look, American citizens vote for politicians. American politicians do not elect themselves, right? And so that's when folks wanted to cry bloody murder about Donald Trump. People voted for Donald Trump, and a whole lot of white people went out and voted for Donald Trump again in 2020, okay? White people in this state, they voted for Matt Bevin, and Matt Bevin was insane, and they went out and voted for Matt Bevin again. So I think it's very easy to kind of scapegoat the Donald Trumps of the world, which that was a white response to Barack Obama. Let's be real about it. Not all white people, obviously. If you're not a white person who's down with all that, if you're not a white person who's defending the folks on the January 6th riots, if you're not a white person who's defending, you know, Trump, if you're not a white person, you know, who's defending Francis Scott Key <laughs> in the Star Spangled Banner, and you don't, and you, and you, you're not a white person who won't read past the second, the first verse of that, and know that that's a slave song, and if no black person in this country ever stood for it again, then I'm not talking about you. If you're not the white people who still defended my old Kentucky home, y'all had, had to change the doggone lyrics in this state, talking about the darkies are gay, how shameful, and you think I'm going to go to a University of Louisville game or a University of Kentucky game and stand up while my old Kentucky home plays or, or, or the Kentucky Derby or whatever, and you're going to get upset about that, then I don't care how you feel. But these people are voting for these politicians, Phil. Right. So you can't just say it's American government. American government is simply the representation of the American electorate. Why do you think your Democrats, Philip, your Democrats, your, your weak spine Democrats won't be stronger because they know that the Republicans have tapped into the heart and soul of white America. Now, they'll change over time. We talked about this a bit earlier before you got on the call that the white population is now less than 50 percent. So American politics will change. America's approach to race will change as America's white population shifts. But right now, I think I think the white supremacists are in their death rattle. You know, they are fighting for life and bruh, it, it is no holds barred. So I don't I don't go with the semantics about, oh, it's just American government. No, these people are reifying American government. They're continuously supporting these folks. We see, and you see it up close and personal, do you not, Philip? From sea to shining sea, it's not just in the South. Insane politicians who continuously are getting elected. How the hell is Lindsey Graham still in office? I mean, come on, man. You know, how is any politician in Texas still in office? Why does Kentucky still have a, they'll have a super majority in the state legislature, Republican-wise? And a lot of people think that Andy Bashir is not going to survive, survive past one term. Can't nobody challenge Mitch McConnell. 
and Rand Paul either. I love my brother Charles Booker, but he got a snowball's chance in hell of beating Rand Paul because Kentuckians love them. And Kentucky is more representative of the majority of America than we like to think. Man, look, it's been great hanging out with y'all, but I, I got to go to my other job now. My students are overweighting. Philip, let's get together soon. Everybody else, let's get together soon too. We can drink together and lament our struggle. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'll, leave, I'll toss it back to you, Brother Jim. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Thank you all so much. It's been, it's been, hey, look, it has been such a blessing to spend time with y'all. I I really do thank you as I, you know, this 25 years in Louisville. Y'all have been good to me. You've made me feel at home. I love you for that. Um, Even though I I brought trouble, you haven't, you know, kicked me out and thrown me in the Ohio River. I I appreciate you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Keep up the good trouble. Keep up the good trouble. Thank you, Wanda. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Before we go, I'd like to a couple of things. Rody Streeter, you have this uh, poster flyer that was created by People's Agenda, Coalition for the People. Okay, so I'm hoping that people who are watching this today copy down this website, www.thepeoplesagenda.net. If you want to get involved, the issue is teaching of history in, in public and middle schools and high schools, as well as our universities. That teaching of uh, that history is under attack now by the state legislature here in Kentucky. Then the Bill 60, Bill 69 will come up again in the state legislature. So if you're interested in how you can help with the people's agenda and supporting the teaching of Native American, African American history, LBGDQ, and women's rights movement in our public schools. We believe that is uh, that teaching all history does matter. So if you want to get involved in that, there on this uh, graphic was created by Jay Adelman. You can log in www.thepeoplesagenda.net and find out how you can get involved. We appreciate it. Folks, we're out of time. We want to thank our keynote speaker today, Dr. Ricky Jones. We want to thank Source of Justice and the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation for their sponsorship of the November 18th or Thursday lunch event. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Dr. Ricky Jones will air again November 22nd at 8 a.m. and November 23rd at 6 a.m. To listen live stream, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Ricky Jones will be placed in our archives November 23rd. To listen via our archives, visit our website, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Dr. Ricky Jones and the Third Thursday Lunch. For Solutions to Violence, I'm Jump Johnson. Our co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thanks for listening.